I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for August 31st, 2017, the Apremois Le Deluge edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times is yawn, but inhaling distance in New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. And you're on book leave starting tomorrow? Book leave starting tomorrow, but not Gab Fest leave, we should make clear. Good. John Dickerson is away, continuing on his well-earned vacation, I hope. I don't even. I don't even know. I assume, is that where he is, Emily? Maybe you know. I don't know. I think so. Yeah. Let's just let's just say that he's on his well-earned vacation. Uh, but that is uh, his loss. Our gain is David Leonhardt, the New York Times columnist, is back. You're a frequent or occasional Gabfest co-host. It is Hello, a David. privilege. Hello, David. Hello, Emily. Hello. We're so glad you're here. That's what David Plotz meant to say. Are you going to say David Plotz? And David Leonhardt. We're going to no, have to do that. just that one moment. On this week's GabFest, Hurricane Harvey drowns Texas, leaving tragedy and destruction behind it. What can we learn from this natural disaster? Then the Antifa movement. What is it? What do they want? Is it good or bad for the left? Then some of the president's top advisors and senior cabinet members have told him implicitly or explicitly somehow to buzz off what happens when there is a president who is neither loved nor feared by the people who work for him. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter and we'll have Slate Plus. And I have a couple of really exciting announcements to follow up on the announcements we made last week. We have two live shows coming up. On October 25th, we are going to be live in Chicago at the Merle Reskin Theater. Tickets to that at slate.com slash live. Going to be a great show in the heart of political season. October 25th at the Reskin Theater, slate.com slash live. And we have our Political GabFest conundrum show live in Boston on December 6th at the Wilbur Theater. So December 6th in Boston, October 25th in Chicago. You can get tickets at slate.com slash live. And Slate Plus members, you receive 30% off your tickets to the show. So slate.com slash live to get tickets. And we have a special guest in Boston to announce. They might be Giants, one of my all-time favorite bands, a band that I go to see on my own, is going to be playing with us. They're going to open the show, and they're going to be the house band for the evening. They're the best songwriters. They also have great songs about politics. They're probably going to perform their James K. Polk song. Um, and so if you are a They Might Be Giants fan, you should definitely join us in Boston 
on December 6th. Slate.com slash live for tickets. Are you as excited about that show, Emily, as I am? I'm really excited. I was like, couldn't believe it when you sent that email. It's so fun. It's really great. Hurricane Harvey is weakening to a tropical depression and meandering its way north and east, having dropped 25 trillion gallons of rain on Texas and Louisiana. That is more water than there is in the Chesapeake Bay by a lot. Houston, of course, saw more than four feet of rain over five days. The death toll is in, when last time I looked, it was in the 30s. It's rising. But I found that a, a hearteningly low number given the devastation. The economic costs, however, are going to be massive. Hundreds of thousands of homes waterlogged, presumably about to get moldy and rotten in the uh, humid Texas environment. That will be incredibly expensive and, and traumatic for people. There are enormous numbers of cars that have been flooded and ruined. There are refineries and chemical plants that have been compromised. This is, of course, the third or fourth year in a row with rainstorms in Houston that were thought to be once-in-a-lifetime kinds of rainstorms. So it's been a disaster. It probably will end up being, David, the greatest natural disaster in American history in terms of economic cost. Has it been handled badly? My instinct is that the sort of frontline response has actually been pretty good. The director of FEMA, Brock Long, seems to be the relatively rare Trump appointee who has proven quite competent. Not totally rare. I mean, Jim Mattis, whom we'll talk about later, has proven competent. There was this whole debate about whether the Houston mayor did the right thing by not evacuating. The stuff that I read made me sympathetic to the mayor, basically, that that trying to evacuate this massive city um, and put everyone on the road right as the rains were coming would not be great. So my instinct, as you said, the death toll, obviously, hearing about 30-something people dying is just terrible. But when you look at the pictures, um, that doesn't seem like a, a surprisingly high death toll. So my instinct is the first line response, we can talk about some of the other issues, has actually been pretty good. Emily, do you agree with David that this order not to evacuate was probably the right decision? Or at least at least there's no way the mayor could have known prospectively that it would end up being maybe a wrong decision? Yeah, I do agree. I mean, there was the sort of history of Hurricane Rita that was hanging over this, where more than 100 people died on the highways in a rush to leave Houston. And also, what from what I understand, when it's rain as opposed to a storm surge, it's harder for the weather authorities to tell exactly where the places are going to be that are hardest hit, and that makes evacuating less predictable. And just given the number of people in Houston, it's hard to imagine how they could have done it without causing a lot of chaos and danger along the way. The one thing I wish that they had had maybe done was some targeted evacuations, right? If you think about, well, what would you have done personally in that situation? Mm -hmm. I think I would have tried to get out of there. Right. And so if you think about that's what you would have done personally, then I do think one of the one of the pieces I read said, look, it wasn't all or nothing. You could have looked at some of the areas that were most likely to flood and you could have tried to do some of those areas. But but on the whole, I am very sympathetic to the mayor. And it was interesting that his political opponent said that he thought the mayor, the, the guy he beat for mayor said that he thought he'd made the right call. That's right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just thinking about Washington, where I live, I would never evacuate because I live on a hill. And so the chances of me being affected by this are very low. And so it would be stupid for me to clog. But whereas people who live down by the water down in, on the southwest waterfront would, of course, need to move. Yeah. 
My wife grew up in Houston, and listening to her talk about this damage just has given me a sense for the scale of it. She said, I just can't fathom how a city as big as Houston is going to recover from this over anything less than months and months and months. You look at these pictures, these roads that she grew up driving on. You look at these downtown pictures. I mean, when you see a neighborhood, you might think, well, maybe they went to the intersection that's most flooded. But when you see downtown, there's only one downtown. And it just feels like it's going to be months for schools, for businesses, for people. It's just going to be a really, really, really long slog. In what sense is this a product of climate change? And does that question matter? And how do we reduce tension about that question? You wrote a little bit about this, David. I did. I think it's a really important question. I mean, basically, we're afraid of that question, right? I mean, when it's, yes. it's a little bit like after a shooting where people say, well, let's not talk about gun control right now. Even scientists are really afraid of that question because they're academics. They want to be super precise. And they and they say, well, we don't know exactly what relationship climate change has to any one storm. And that's totally true. But I think we have to start talking about this. I mean, in Houston's case, we know the Gulf of Mexico was warmer this past winter than it's ever been. We know that warm water produces more rainfall. I mean, of all the, the climate science, that's one of the ones in the really clear. We know that higher seas tend to produce more flooding. And so it's just really clear, David, you were saying that we keep hearing this, oh my goodness, unprecedented storm. It's clear that climate change is playing an overall role, even if we can't exactly connect the dots for any one storm. I think it's crazy to refuse to talk about that because the way to prevent future Harveys is to talk about it. Yeah, I agree about that. And yet the kind of, I think you use the term scientific reticence in your piece, David, or something like that to talk about how scientists don't like to overclaim, right? They're kind of allergic to overclaiming. It's their job to be very careful and that culture, which has a real value, is obviously um, in some tension with the problem of not recognizing climate change as an important causal factor, because until we recognize that, we're not taking the steps that we could and should to prevent it, and not only just in terms of reducing emissions, but also thinking about where these cities are, you know, how what kind of rebuilding should be done in which locations, what the real risks are. I mean, but Houston is where it is. It's a city of whatever, 4 million people. It is located in the place that it is located. You can't pick up Houston the way you could pick up a small riverside village and move it 100 feet above the village. It is there. The infrastructure is there. Given that, what as a matter of public policy do we do with the fact that it is going to continue to get drenched and soaked and the the coastline near it is going to be eaten up how do we handle that you know what what houston faces is miami you know miami will have this in 10 years something like this is going to happen to miami something like this is going to happen again to new orleans new york city what do we do about it to me there's the global answer and the local answer right the global answer is well we try to do things about climate change right we we embark on a really a more serious effort to develop low pollution forms of energy we embark on an effort to make dirty energy more expensive i mean all the classic things carbon tax cap and trade you name it and most of the world now agrees with that, including conservative parties in most of the world. The big exception is the Republican Party in this country. And then there's the local answer, which is there are things you can do in a city. I mean, Houston didn't have to pave as much as they did. I mentioned my wife is from there. I first visited there in the late 90s. There was a lot of pavement in Houston in the late 90s. There's something like 30% more pavement today than in the late 90s. And so- uh, And explain what the problem is with the pavement. 
So this is, I, I've learned a lot about pavement over the last week. If you just think about, imagine pouring buckets of water into a field, what happened? What happens? It soaks in. Now imagine pouring buckets of water into a parking lot. It doesn't soak in. And so pavement produces flooding. Now there are forms of permeable pavement that are that help. And there was this executive order of Obama's that, that would try to help that Trump reversed in terms of flood prone areas. So I guess that to me is the answer. We're not going to, we can't avoid all the danger, but I do think we can mitigate some things. Does that feel right? Yeah, that has to be right, that there has to be more consciousness about these risks and how cities built themselves out when they are in low-lying areas. And, you know, there's going to be a insurance costing out of this damage that should push the builders in that direction, right? Because it just becomes too expensive to insure certain properties given the constellation of risks. So if nothing else, there should be some market pressures that come more strongly to bear on this question. Well, I want to talk about the market, the flood insurance market pressures in a second. But actually, I don't, the, the thing that I think is so difficult is that coastal cities, Houston is not a coastal city, but it's, you know, it's, it is, afflicted because it is near it is near the ocean in this case but coastal cities are there because coasts are where commerce starts and and ends and it's the their transit points and it's very important for any society any society that's ever been worth its salt that's ever been a global nation has had very large successful cities on its coast and those are the places which are most at risk in the world that we now face and it is it's not going to be easy to maintain these cities in the face of this kind of pressure. And Harvey is not is not a result of rising seas directly. It's a result of these factors that David talked about. But I, I just think we're we are very, 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 very far away from thinking about what it, what are the measures that we can possibly take. I mean, in a way, you're arguing that we're in denial about many things, including our cities, right? And there's this really dark thought, which may have a silver lining, which is, the one thing that might change some of the politics of climate change is a storm that that really does terrible damage to one of our most important cities. And I don't mean something like Harvey. I mean much worse damage than that. Maybe, although those are blue cities, right? And the people who are standing on the other side unconvinced by and large, don't win elections in those cities. That is a problem for the nice optimistic <laughs> spin that you just gave, which I like. Right. And, and the balance of the, one of the problems with the balance of power in this country is not simply that at a national level that rural interests are overbenefited over urban ones, but at almost every state level, too, the, the non-city interests have much more power than the city interests relative to population and economic influence. And so I mean, we already destroyed a city. New Orleans was already destroyed. I mean, or or heavily, heavily damaged. And did that change anything? No. I mean, I think we don't know what's going to change something. And I want to be clear, I'm not rooting for this, right? I'm not rooting for terrible destruction that's going to change the politics of don't climate worry. change. Don't worry. We didn't think that you were the <laughs> evil maestro behind the flooding. But I guess I do think it's not simply a red-blue thing, right? I mean, if you think about the places that are most vulnerable to climate change damage, we're talking about North Carolina, we're talking about Florida, we're talking about Texas. And yes, there are often blue cities within those red areas, but you have business communities and you have governors. I mean, we saw during the healthcare debate that there were Republican governors who were basically willing to say, whoa, let's let's try to be realistic here. I mean, look, in the end, climate change is going to affect both Democrats and Republicans. And I think as we see the damage start to mount, I would hope I am not predicting it with any with any timetable, but I would hope it would start to change people's understanding of just how terrible this is. 
let's go back to the flood insurance question briefly, which is that there is a national flood insurance program in this country, which is federally backed. Whereas if you're living in an area which is at flood risk, you can buy insurance. And in fact, no bank will give you a mortgage unless you have flood insurance if you live in a flood prone area. But the flood insurance is not priced correctly in the sense that people are paying far less in premiums than we are now paying out uh, from flood damage. How is Congress going to fix that? And and when Congress, I think when there was an attempt to raise the premiums to make up for the fact that this program was billions and billions in the, in the hole, the people who were paying those premiums rebelled and so their premiums weren't raised. I mean, the Wall Street Journal, I thought, had a really good front page story about this telling this whole story. This isn't a new phenomenon. I mean, basically, there's been no private market for flood insurance for decades and decades and decades, which to me relates to David, your point about how much denial we're in, right, which is, we're basically not willing to acknowledge that these extremely valuable, productive businesses we've put in places and in situations where they can't really survive, right? Because private businesses, we don't want to sell flood insurance, it's just the people who are going to lose their, their businesses and homes that want to buy it. And so I don't exactly know how we fix it. But it's hard to think of a better example of how we're in denial than the, than the flood insurance market not working. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And in terms of fixing it again, then you have this kind of complicated politics of who in Congress wants people to pay more money. Like, that's not a popular stance to take, especially at a moment like this. This is a moment where everyone wants to just, like, open the coffers and reassure people that they're going to be compensated without thinking a whole lot about whether the underlying program has the right um, financing behind it. And it is going to get a lot worse. That Wall Street Journal story pointed out that we've basically had more billion-dollar floods in the last couple of years than we used to have in, you know, entire 10 or 20 year periods. Emily, what do you make of the president's behavior and handling of the Harvey and its and its uh, recovery so far? I mean, look, what really matters is what we were talking about earlier. What is the response been like? Has it been organized? You know, we're all thinking on some level of Katrina as this kind of specter in the background of disaster that must be averted. And it seems like to the extent the federal government through FEMA is you know, plays an important role that it's kind of passing those tests. You know, what does it mean to have a president show up in this devastated area and talk about his crowd sizes and not, you know, meet with not even stage a photo op with a survivor, like not have not display any sense of empathy or compassion or even like, real deep concern for the people affected. I mean, his tweets, it was like he was watching a really exciting sports event, right? Like, it was all about how it was the biggest and the most and all about how it reflected back on him. Now, like, none of this is surprising at this point. But it's got to have some kind of social meaning to have such a narcissistic response to a terrible disaster in which we've seen every other leader in my lifetime kind of rise out of themselves and try to present some kind of focal point of compassion and dignity and wisdom. Like, we just got none of that. The signature moment for me was when he said the reason he pardoned Arpaio when he did was because people would be watching TV because of the storm, and so the ratings would be great. I mean... Right. It's unbelievable. Is it, but does this matter? Does it matter, Emily, that he is not showing it? I mean, is is the company... I mean, is the country people, traumatized because... No, I don't think the country is traumatized. Other people step into the breach. I've been finding watching Sylvester Turner, the mayor of Houston, to be reassuring. Like, he's displaying these... Att- some public official is going to rise to the occasion. But it does... 
it's not helpful for the kind of social unity and in those like intangible small ways that are very hard to measure, we lost something. Last question, David, there will now be some huge relief bill that Congress will take up. They may try to attach it to something else in order to get something more difficult passed. But there'll be a tons, billions and billions of dollars that will be set aside to relieve the damage done to people in, in uh, Texas and Louisiana from this. Is it fair to bang on Republicans who voted against the Sandy bill who will now support this? I think it's fair to bang on them, but I wouldn't use it if I were in Congress to vote the other way. I mean, I think it's absolutely fair to say, look, it's hypocritical of people like Ted Cruz to have voted against the Sandy relief and now to turn around and say, oh, we want our relief. But I wouldn't go so far as to say that members of Congress should then vote against the relief. Texas needs relief. Louisiana needs relief. And in the end, you're hurting people much more than Ted Cruz by voting against it. I totally agree with that. I mean, this is where, like, we are a wealthy country. We should help these people whose lives have been devastated. I mean, there's just so much damage as we've been talking about. But, yeah, there is, like, a an irony to watching the Ted Cruz's of the world just completely contradict themselves. You know what has me terrified is that there will be a day, and it will be in our lifetime, when there will be a storm like this, devastation like this, and we'll have had so many of them that we – we're just not going to be able to fund it. I mean, you, it is, we're a rich country. We can afford to do things like this now. I'm not convinced that in 50 years, given the frequency and the intensity of these kinds of events, that that there will be the appetite to, you know, are we going to, we're not going to save uh, uh, um, Savannah when Savannah gets slammed in, in 2038. I don't know. It makes me anxious. It makes me scared. If you're right about that, then that might be the ugly wedge that changes the dynamic of where people live and whether we rebuild these cities, right? Well, I think if you get to the point where the national government of the United States cannot fund relief of a major city, you've gotten to a point where the national government of the United States is in really dire shape and the country is in That's true. In really You're imagining shape. a really gloomy <laughs> well, scenario. I just read this book. I mean, I talked about it on the show. I don't know if either of you have gotten around to reading it, American War, which is a about a future it's about in a future where there's an american the american south and the rest of the country are at war but it's a south it's a country that's been totally devastated by climate change and completely eaten into and that has has fractured the nation all sorts of ways but one of the things that's happened is that as the as the country degraded these cities got lost and the country sort of started to fall apart as they did it's grim grim sounds grim why have we taken the conversation in this direction we had a nice upbeat mode a few minutes ago i don't this this we're gonna leave everyone feeling really worried and i don't know this uh this storm makes me it makes me scared and fretful in a way that like north korean missiles don't what do you think the right answer is david you clearly don't think that we should just keep rescuing these cities that haven't done anything to prepare but we also shouldn't leave the cities to die well, I think we should leave Miami to die. I do think Miami, we should. But but I think that, that there are cities, I think a city like New York is defensible. And we should be making huge investments in protecting New York because there's just, it's too important to lose and it can be saved. Probably whatever the Dutch are doing, like you call the Dutch, you say, hey, Dutch people, what have you done? Can we borrow that? Can we license that technology from you and start doing that wherever we have a big, rich coastal city, except in Florida, which is completely hosed? I'm looking forward to the live uh, GabFest in Miami. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure they're going to invite us down there. 
All right. Coming up in Slate Plus, we are going to talk about the most important economic concept that people don't understand but need to understand. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to join. I'm looking forward to that conversation a lot. I'm looking forward to understanding an economic concept. I think you understand economic concepts, Emily. I do, some of them, but I might get to add one to my repertoire. Yeah. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia and identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Antifa demonstrators attacked and beat peaceful right-wing protesters in Berkeley last weekend, the latest high-intensity action from the largely anarchist black bloc wing of the anti-Trump left. The Antifa, Antifa, there's a, the, just the debate on the pronunciation is could take this whole discussion, but I'm going to try to stick to Antifa. The Antifa, who are generally masked and generally anonymous, have engaged in violence and disruption to confront, disperse, discredit, harass, and annoy the rising far right. Antifa were on the scene in Charlottesville. They disrupted and rioted at the Milo Yiannopoulos, that's another name that's hard to go with, Milo Yiannopoulos speech in Berkeley earlier this year. They were out in force at the inauguration. Trump's presidency and the rise of the white supremacist right has brought the Antifa movement huge support from the left and a new energy. So, Emily, wait, huge support, some support, really? some support, huge, Ugh. huge growth relative to their size. But good. There were two of them and now there are more. How about that? Wow. I think I think Emily has a position here. Is there anything legit? Exaggerating is, there, is helpful here. Well, it's it, it wasn't two. There were a hundred at Berkeley this past week. Yeah, that's what I meant. There were two before. And now there are a hundred. There Fine. weren't two Few before. Hundreds. Anyway, go ahead. There weren't I two just before. I mean, huge. that's not even true. There were. If okay, you fine. remember those World Bank protests of you know ten years ago, yes, there were people no, that's there. True. The, and does the Seattle feel like one has seen the, this scene before. Yes, Seattle, Seattle WTO. Bank, little bits of Occupy. Yes. yes. Is there anything Emily legit in what? Antifa stands for and does? I basically feel like the answer is no. But the truth is that I find this whole approach so deeply frustrating that I'm not entirely rational about it and can't quite disentangle my feelings that this is totally counterproductive to the extent that I'm not even sure that I like to me, it just seems like playing into the hands of the right over and over again, giving the right the TV footage and, you know, some kind of moral outrage high ground that the right does not deserve, especially right now. So I can't even really think through what the goals of this movement are, except some of it seems like it's really driven by anarchist goals. And when I think about it that way, it makes a tiny bit of sense, because if you want to show that the government can't help people and is ineffective, and you're really trying to just destroy the government, then I guess beating people up on the street when they've gathered to peacefully protest makes has like some kind of rational element to it as a method of fighting racism and proto-fascism. I find it to be just wholly, wholly unproductive. And I wish they would stop deeply. 
Well, there's this two latest argument that the Antifa make, which is that the brown shirts weren't stopped in the early 20s. The fascists weren't stopped in 1919 in Italy uh, at the point when they could have been stopped, at the point when the 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 fascist movements, which were relying on violence and the intimidation of the population, could have been you know strangled in their crib. That was the that was the moment to do it, and therefore, if we sit by now and are quiet now and are and are merely merely passively resisting now, we miss the the opportunity to prevent these right wing paramilitaries, these white supremacist paramilitaries, from growing into a powerful country ruling national movement. Does that have any? Yeah, does that mean that, like, anything to you? A, does that no, persuade I mean, you at all? Well, I just. I'm all for preventing the growth of, you know, neo-Nazi and fascist movements to the extent that that's what's happening. And I think the the white supremacist support does seem to be at least more public. Um, certainly, that's the lesson of Charlottesville. But I don't think that it is strangling anyone in their crib to show up and, like, throw rocks and punch people at a march. That just doesn't accomplish the goal. I don't believe it for one second. It seems just, again, like you're just providing fodder for Fox News and every other right-wing news outlet that doesn't want to think about, you know, the deep inequality, the real social problems that we're having in the country. And it turns the, it it makes real Trump's claim that, you know, there is blame to go around on, quote, many sides or all sides. And that I just deeply feel like that does not help the left. That hurts the left. So, David, do you agree with Emily's take on this? Mostly, yeah. I mean, I agree with your what everything you just said when you were adopting the voice of the Antifa, I agree with. What you then obviously did not go to is, and thus we should go punch some uh, some racists, right? And I think from, from a sheer effectiveness standpoint, exactly as Emily's saying, going out and punching racists or even sometimes punching people who are simply Trump supporters who may or may not be racist um, is deeply ineffective, right? I mean, it really – it doesn't stop these – white supremacists, it helps them for all the reasons that Emily was laying out. I, I thought it was interesting in the Peter Beinart piece in The Atlantic. There was most of it you read, and uh, to me, it just reminded me of all the reasons why this is a, a really, the Antifa is just a terrible idea. But buried in it was one thing that reminded me that there actually are really productive forms of this. And it talked about how they would engage in the punk rock scene and try to persuade people not to become neo-Nazis. That the punk rock scene was sort of a place where, where neo-Nazis and white supremacists were recruiting people and they would engage. They would sort of go into these in these subcultures. Um, but the way to persuade people to not join that isn't, you know, to to beat them up. And and so yeah. Right. Persuade and engage is different. And I, I even understand some of the forms of social ostracism or trying to out people, right? It's the violence that I abhor. Right. So there are these, the exposing the identity of people participating in protests, the harassment, the doxing of people at rallies, the expo the publicizing the fact that, that white supremacist events are going to take place in order to generate counter protests. Those are also things that Antifa does. Um, and I'm not, the doxing part of it, I'm not for, but the sort of general exposure and and making people stand up and reveal themselves if they're going to hold these political positions, make them be accountable for those political positions. But agreed that the violence, violent part of it is useless. Did you guys ever read the Bill Finnegan, William Finnegan 
book Cold New World. Do you know this book? No. So, so he's this New Yorker writer. And he wrote this incredible book in the, I think it must be the mid-90s, kind of about disaffected young people. And there's this one piece, which I think was a New Yorker piece, which was about the conflict between the sort of neo-Nazis and these anti-racist action, the, who are the sort of proto-Antifa people in exurban California, just like really shitty parts of California, like parts where parents are all meth addicted or oxy. I mean, that was pre-oxy, but meth addicted. And it, that was what was happening is that there was a, there were these two poles, these two ten, these two uh, draws for these these disaffected white kids. One was one was the sort of neo-Nazi movement, and the other was the Antifa movement. And they were they were at odds with each other and it's really it's a fascinating a picture of this 20 years ago and how how deep this is that book really holds up i just have to say one of my kids just read it recently yeah dude well this is the chapter on nazi mindy there's nazi mindy who's the the neo-nazi girl they always call her and there's mindy and then there's nazi mindy and there's a whole chapter set in new haven you know naturally how do you deal with the fact emily that for these antifa it's more fun it's fun. Yes. Right. I think that's a pretty significant element. Whatever claims the movement wants to make about its goals, some of this you can just feel this like sly enjoyment of breaking windows and punching people in the face. That does seem to be part of what's going on here. And like, sorry, but that's really destructive. And giving people like Ann Coulter and Milo reason to say, you know, we have been wronged and it just yeah, I just don't I don't see how it has any utility. I think it's more fun though for a larger number of people to do something that's not violent. And I think that is something to take some solace in, right? Whether it's organizing around a political campaign, you think about how much um, enjoyment and value many young people took from getting involved in Obama's campaign in 08. You think about the indivisible movement and the various movements of disabled rights that fought the attempt to repeal the health care bill. I still think many, many more people are going to prefer the form of political activism that doesn't involve brickbats. Right. That, that's definitely true. And, and nonviolent activism can be great fun and it's also incredibly effective. But there's this also asymmetry, which is that a small number of destructive people can cause an enormous amount of harm in a way. Yes. So that even if they're just a few people who find it more fun to punch people, those few people can can really mess with everybody. They can. And that's why I think it's been important that you've seen people on the left, like Nancy Pelosi, speak out very clearly against this. I mean, I, to me, yes. to me, the route to progressive goals, right, has to involve persuading many people in the middle, uh, political middle and the middle of the country. And so I think it's just really important that Democrats not play footsie with the violent fringe the way Donald Trump does. And to be clear, the violent fringe of the right is a much bigger problem statistically by any measure than the violent fringe of the left. Right. And kills more, many more people, many more right? People. I mean, in terms of actual casualties, that's where it's at. Well, so what? what is it that, that the left and the, the progressive left should do about the fact that they're at their counter protests and at their marches, there is this small minority of people who are showing up, who are identifying themselves as allies and who are causing destruction? How do they ostracize or, or keep them away? I think there are ways you organize to keep them away, right? You sort of be on the lookout for people who are coming into the middle of your demonstration um, with uh, brickbats, as I said. And then I think there's also the political Is way. a brickbat an actual thing? 
That's a good point. It's I know, just as sort of you used. Saying it, I, was like, I don't even know what, what is a brick bat. Is it like a flat it, club or something, or what is it? Yeah, that's a good question. It's one of those. Do you, I'm sure you both know Carlos Lozada, the Washington Post editor, who always highlights words that aren't real things that writers use too often. <laughs> I, I think I've just <laughs> run afoul of Carlos's rules. Um, so they I'll say come with club. bricks, bricks and bats. I don't even think they come with clubs. Who has a club anymore? What is a club? Uh, let's. One of the descriptions said wooden poles, right? Okay. Um, uh, where were we? Uh, so, so how do you ostracize or keep them away? Yeah, so one is you make sure they don't become part of your rally. Two is that I think you do things like Pelosi, like you say these people don't stand for us. And three, I think sometimes the left, including people who probably have no interest in going and participating in an Antifa event, I do think sometimes the American left is conflicted about whether to be patriotic. And I would argue it's just vastly more effective for the American left to be patriotic, to embrace the flag, to carry American flags, not flags of other countries, at pro-immigrant marches. And I think if you if the left can have enough of those symbols, I think in the long term, it's going to be much more effective. Right. And, and, and even going along with that is to work with the police and to identify yourselves with the government authorities and legitimate government authority. Because one of the things that, that, that has caused these eruptions of violence is that we've, we have a police and security forces that are uncertain of how to engage or uncertain where they should engage. And if you as a leftist protester can say, hey, police, you know, we really support you. We appreciate your, your service. We want you to help. And we really want you to help us reduce the violence. Like that is a, that's a way to also align yourself with American yes. values and, and institutions. Good points. I have not to add. There is a cousin here of the whole debate over college campuses and PCs, which is often a tiresome debate because it's really not one of the 20 biggest problems in this country. And, and, and it's sometimes treated on Fox News and elsewhere like the great problem in our country. But I do think you, you hear in Antifa this notion of, well, Donald Trump's language is violent and thus it is appropriate to respond to someone wearing a Make America Great hat with violence. And I also think it's important for progressives to say, no, that's wrong. Yes, Donald Trump has committed violence, it seems, against women in particular. Yes, he encourages violence at his rallies. But that isn't the same as saying that someone who's wearing a Donald Trump shirt is therefore committing violence and thus has legitimately opened themselves up um, to being hit over the head. And I think that's also important for people on the left to be pretty clear about. And that's language you hear on college campuses, right? That, that, that this is equivalent to violence. Well, no, violence is violence. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not as uh, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Does President Trump have any influence over his own administration? This is a question of the week as several top officials have openly distanced themselves from the president and his policies. 
Secretary of State Rex Tillerson told Fox that the president speaks for himself in his response to Charlottesville. Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis told service members to hold the line and endure while the country gets through its problems at home. He also disassociated himself from the president's or the administration's remarks about North Korea policy and also has hinted that he's going to slow walk the president's ban on transgender service members. The head of the National Economic Council, Gary Cohn, reportedly drafted a resignation letter after Charlottesville, but then decided to stay because he thought it was too important for him to stay and, and nudge the president to oppose tariffs and to calm the markets by staying. Emily, this president seems neither loved nor feared by his own employees. Can he govern with this kind of insubordination? It's interesting that he hasn't attacked any of these people, right? I mean, the the administration official who's taken it on the nose is Jeff Sessions, and that Jeff Sessions is an ingratiator, not a uh, not there's nothing insubordinate about Jeff Sessions, right? I mean, Trump is mad at him over the Mueller investigation, but that's like a deep misunderstanding of the rule of law and <laughs> in our country. So, it doesn't seem that there are particular consequences we know about for these statements. And I I think the answer is yes, they can govern, or at least this kind of distancing from the president is not going to be what sinks any of them. Not can they govern, can he govern? Well, right, but their governing is him governing, right? Like, I mean, Tillerson is a ma- another matter because the State Department seems to be essentially like rudderless and a mess and people are jumping ship. But, you know, when you look at the Defense Department or, well, I don't know, I can't really, it's hard for me to understand what exactly Gary, like how we would know if, if Gary Cohn wasn't working. But I was going to make my customary point about the cabinet secretaries, which is that they have a huge amount of power. They can just like keep plugging away. It doesn't really matter what kind of rhetoric they have about the president, right? They're like still have these huge agencies. And when what exactly is I suppose you could argue that they are weakening Trump. And that's like one more reason why it will be hard for him to do what exactly get legislation passed. Like there already are all kinds of reasons why that is difficult. So I don't know what is the actual impact of these statements on the president, David Leonhardt? I actually think it relates to the Antifa discussion, which is you've heard this kind of nihilism sometimes on the left today that nothing matters, right? Trump himself kind of captured it when he said, I could go out on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and I wouldn't lose some of my supporters. I think that's just wrong. I think Trump is the weakest president we've ever seen, right? He's still the most powerful person in the country, but he's the weakest president we've ever seen. His approval ratings were low and they've fallen. The percentage of people who strongly approve of him has also fallen. Republicans in Congress are willing to openly defy him. The people in his own cabinet are willing to openly defy him. So to me, the first point I would make about this is the opposition is having a lot of success here, right? And it's important to keep going and keep pushing um, if you uh, abhor what Trump stands for. Will they still be able to get some things done? Clearly. But I do think that all this, even if we can't exactly explain or know exactly how it matters, I think it matters to have the defense secretary and the secretary of state and the head of the National Economic Council essentially coming out and um, criticizing the president of the United States. So he he uh, was stringing Jeff Sessions up a few weeks ago and was was pinyading him. And Jeff Sessions remains our attorney general. He seems like he's going to remain our attorney general. Yep. He wasn't fired when when Trump seemed to be trying to fire him or at least get him to quit. Does the fact that that 
Trump didn't execute Sessions, does that mean that it's now uh, free reign for the cabinet and Trump people to basically do whatever they want? Why isn't Trump able to hold his own people to account? I think it's probably more about how weak he is than it is about Sessions per se. Right. Like, how could he get another attorney general confirmed? I mean, right? He was, that's where, that was the hard place he got stuck at when he wanted to get rid of Sessions. So that means that everyone sort of has a lifetime tenure now. They do kind of have lifetime tenure. Yeah. Or they have Trump administration tenure. I mean, some of them will, I'm sure, leave anyway at some, well, I don't know. They seem to be willing to put up with a lot. Maybe not. There seems to be this difference between White House people of whom he has fired many (laughs) and cabinet secretaries. I think there's the interesting question of do they want lifetime tenure? I mean, to put it another way, what are you two rooting for? Do you want Jim Mattis and Rex Tillerson and Gary Cohn to stay or do you want them to quit? I think I want them to stay. I think I do too. But it's a hard question. Really? All of them? Oh, let's see. I mean, I feel mixed about it. Rex Tillerson seems to be a terrible Secretary of State, as far as I can tell. Like, all the reports from inside Foggy Bottom make it sound like he's doing such a good job. Mattis, he could stay. Gary Cohn, I mean, I just still feel like, as a Jew, he should have resigned. I don't find the writing of the letter and not submitting it to be sufficient at all. And then he did criticize the president, right? He said, you know, he should needs to do better, or at least the administration needs to do better in addressing racism. And I read that remark and thought, well, he's sticking around to replace Janet Yellen as head of the Federal Reserve, and I bet that Trump is going to hold this against him and not give him that position. And so he's going to have, you know served this corrupt master and not even get what he wants in the end. Like what happened to Mitt Romney when he tried to become Secretary of State. Yes. There's this interesting reversal that's happening, which is historically, or for the last 40 or so years, cabinets have been getting weaker and weaker, that that hmm. essentially White Houses have been running all policy out of the White House, and that's where everything happened centrally. And what we're witnessing now is a reversal of that, and it's a return to an earlier kind of model of of how government works, almost like a 19th century model where cabinet secretaries have a huge amount of autonomy and presidents were not heavily involved in the day-to-day of policy. And that's because you have a White House which is uninterested in policy and is incapable of enforcing a line on anything. And it's essentially liberated these cabinet secretaries to kind of pursue the policies that they more or less want to pursue. And where you have very effective and ruthless people, like at EPA, you have huge amounts of stuff happening and huge amounts of policy change happening in a very fast and for liberals scary way. And that at other places like state where you have a a bumbler, nothing really much is happening. It used to be that the White House ran everything. And now that is this White House is almost not quite a bystander, but it's close. What's funny about this is Jeff Sessions belongs on the list of cabinet officials who are actually getting a huge amount done. I assume you'd agree with that. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely very effective. And I think what this White House does is suck up all the oxygen of the press coverage, right? So there's so much to make fun of and talk about on cable news. Meanwhile, Jeff Sessions, Scott Pruitt, and other cabinet secretaries are really marching through their agenda. Um, You know, in the EPA, it's an agenda of an enormous amount of deregulation. It's kind of dizzying what's happening, but also like more boring, less easy to make into good media quick fodder um, than, you know, should Trump be selling his like USA hat for $40 on a website? 
in the middle of a hurricane. No, he shouldn't. That's easy. It's much harder to, you know, figure out the the sort of hard work of like Eric Lipton at the Times, who's been doing this amazing reporting on the EPA, like that, you have to pay a little more attention to understand fully what's going on. In general, do you guys prefer this model where we have a president who who has no real power to one who has tons of real power? It's so hard to separate, right? Because what I prefer is a president who's different from this president. And given what he wants to do and who he is, I prefer him not having ultimate power. But uh, I think if we had a different kind of president, I'm not sure that a model with super empowered cabinet secretaries as well as a super empowered legislature is the most effective way to have a democracy function. Yes, I would agree with that. But David Plotz, you are a big fan of reducing executive power. So is there kind of something to hope lasts out of this administration within that regard, like a structural shift that you would want to preserve? Well, one would hope, although I'm also a fan of kind of a an active Congress legislating effectively and vigorously, and we don't seem to have that either. So it appears to me that we have the worst of all possible worlds, which is that we have a a terrifying, incompetent president, a cabinet, which is a mix of incompetent and horrible, and then a, a Congress, which is unable to act. The, the, the inability of Congress to act has, is what makes me so scared. I think the one Trump official who's worth mentioning before we leave the conversation is Steve Mnuchin. Because to me, he chose the worst possible path, which is he came out and issued this ringing statement saying Donald Trump didn't say what you all just heard him say. And I I found that. And how could you have possibly heard what you just heard? What could you possibly be thinking? Yeah, that was really dreadful. And then we just have to say like his wife, worst ever Instagram. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. David Leonhart, when you are having a contemplative Labor Day cocktail on the porch of Leonhart Manor, what will you be chattering about? Like you, David, I just got back from a nice vacation, and it got me thinking about the topic of out-of-office vacation replies. Oh, that's a good topic. So several uh, several years ago, I sent an email to Thomas Piketty before he was quite so famous, the French economist, um, and I said I wanted to talk to him about something, and I got this absolutely great reply, which I don't remember exactly, but it was essentially, I'm gone for August, don't expect to hear from me, uh, get in touch with me later. And it was so much more French than American, right? Whereas in Amer- in this country, we have this passive aggressive, you know, version of I might look at your email, people mm-hmm. try to convey their importance. And so that inspired me and I did to did some reading to write a more aggressive out of office re- reply than I've written before. Okay. So I copied from uh-huh. what some other people have done. And I specifically said, I'm out of the office. I'm back August 23rd. If you want me to read this, please forward it to me again, then. And I've since read even more aggressive versions of that, people who have said, look, I'm out of the office and I will not read your email if you send it while I'm gone. And I have to say, I felt a little insecure about it because it is a little aggressive. And boy, did it feel good. The lack of guilt over those two plus weeks of accumulating email and this notion that I'm actually going to go back and read it just felt healthy. So did you, when you got back, so there's the the mail that was from August uh, you know, 3rd to August 23rd, did you just delete it all? 
I did not delete it Or all. did you actually go back and read it? Well, so here's the thing. I started going back and reading it, mm-hmm. right? This is the exact right question to ask. I started going back reading it, figure, well, I have the excuse of ignoring the ones I want to ignore. And then it was just too much. And I got about two days into it. And so I really didn't read it. So you're right. I, was, I did not have the full confidence, the full courage of my convictions. But in the end, sort of logistically, I was forced into them. Huh. And I have to say, there weren't that many people, but there were a few super organized people who, in fact, resent their emails to them. And I made sure to reply to all of those immediately. Do you really not check your email when you're on vacation? I totally check my email when I'm on vacation. I, it's, in fact, I love checking my email when I'm on vacation. Yeah. <laughs> Why? Because it's like you're, you're, you're escaping from your fucking family. Oh, I thought you were saying it was schadenfreude. You're looking at all these emails that you don't actually have to read. No, it's like, God, it's like, no, it's escaping from the family. I actually like being on vacations, but I I will confess that I occasionally open up my email, but I really didn't reply to emails on this vacation. And it felt good. And I would encourage all of us to become a little more French in the way we deal with vacation emails. Maybe. Bien sûr. Emily. So I mostly try not to speak in public about Ivanka Trump because she infuriates me to a degree that I start to froth at the mouth. But this week, the Trump administration decided to roll back a rule that the Obama administration had planned that was going to require companies to to make public in the aggregate data about how they pay people based on gender, related to gender and I think race as well. And to me, this seems like actually a really important move to make a way of companies presenting publicly how their pay scales operate. It could be a shaming device. It could be a way to praise certain companies that have more equality. But this kind of data we tend to lack in American life. We're very reticent about asking people in our workplaces or outside of them how much they get paid. And so often there's really no way to know if you're being treated fairly or not. And I I think the transparency here, it seems like the it wasn't a super onerous government rule where they were coming in and you know telling companies to change their pay structures. So the Trump administration, of course, is rolling this back. And Ivanka Trump made a statement about how she supported this rollback because while this was a well-intentioned um, rule, it wouldn't meet its goals. Totally shallow, no explanation of why it wouldn't meet its goals, nothing. And I just hope this is the end of the illusion that Ivanka Trump, you know, feels her feminism in any deep way that actually like accomplishes something for women as opposed to being a pose that she puts on that helps her sell clothing. All right. I want to talk about an episode that I had never heard of, which turns out to be one of the most important moments in global diplomatic history. I was reading this grant biography, which uh, I talked about on an earlier GabFest. But there's this episode which comes as a kind of a nice reminder in in a moment when the president has been trashing NAFTA, trashing our relationships with Canada and Mexico. So right after the Civil War, the U.S. Civil War, there were huge tensions between the United States and the U.K. That is because during the Civil War, British hunger for cotton and for economic advantage had led um, Britain to implicitly support the Confederacy and to do things which which indirectly led to attacks on union shipping and and it really pissed off the union and it pissed off the, the United States after the war and so after the war the United States sought revenge and sought reparations for the damage that it thought that the UK had done to us and so we made a very serious effort to annex all of Canada that was one of our initial demands as reparations like we we get all of Canada that didn't go very far but that was a there was a huge movement in the US to annex all of Canada but in this, as we started talking about annexing all of Canada, we began to negotiate with the 
the British. And instead that we ended up in this kind of three-way negotiation of the US, the UK, and Canada, which was then newly independent, um, and produced something called the Treaty of Washington in 1871, which ultimately ended with the British paying us a bit of money, kind of sort of quasi apologizing, not apologizing for what they did during the Civil War, giving us some fishing rights, um, settling some border disputes in the Pacific Northwest, uh, ending other territorial disputes. And the result of this and some other little diplomatic negotiation afterwards was this enormous unarmed border with Canada, the evaporation of the threat of war or conflict with the United Kingdom, and the beginning of this enormous, uh, this long and wonderful history of the strongest alliance that the United States has with the UK, which got us through World War One and World War Two, And it all comes out of this, this effort that um, the Grant administration makes after the Civil War to kind of find a way to get to peace and accommodation with the British. And it's a, it was a huge diplomatic triumph. It has borne fruit for 150 years, and I'd never heard of it. So the Treaty of Washington. Let's hear it for the Treaty of Washington. Absolutely. All right. So before we go, I'm, you guys, I'm sure, have listened to Trumpcast. And I just want to recommend to our listeners who have not listened to Trumpcast that they give it a shot. Trumpcast is a quasi-daily podcast that sets out to understand Trump. And Jacob Weisberg, uh, the chairman of Slate, longtime colleague and boss of ours, along with the writer Virginia Heffernan and Jamel Bowie, Slate's chief political correspondent, share the hosting duties. They talk to historians, psychiatrists, political analysts. I'm sure you've been a guest on it, David. If I you have. haven't been a guest, I will eat my shirt. I have. And it was, I went on after we produced our first edition of the Trump lies, our attempt at a definitive list. And it was a wonderful experience. Jacob asks great questions. And so I echo your recommendation. So try Trumpcast from Slate. Our producer today was Kevin Townsend. Kevin was all grown up. Kevin, who was started as our intern, became our researcher, is now producing the show today because Jocelyn's out. Isn't that wonderful? Thank you, Kevin. Uh, Afim Shapiro engineered it. Izzy Rode is sort of sharing researcher duties with Kevin and will very shortly become the full researcher. Leave us a rating at Apple Podcasts. It helps us a lot. We could use your rating and your review. It helps us to reach more people. It helps us to draw attention to the podcast. Please go ahead and do that in Apple Podcast For Emily Bazelon and David Leonhardt, both of the New York Times, I'm David Plotz. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.